two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to this episode of The Flip Side. I'm Jeff Melley, the Global Head of Research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Christian Keller, our Global Head of Economics. Thanks for joining me, Christian. Thanks for having me. Now, today, we're going to conclude our series on the economic and market implications of COVID-19. In prior episodes, we focused on short-term issues like the shape of the recovery or the effectiveness of fiscal policy. Today, we're going to talk about the potential for long-term lasting change to the global economy as a result of COVID-19. Indeed, I think COVID-19 is very likely to cause the deepest global recession since the Second World War. And it's such a tremendous shock, really, that I think there's a real potential for long-lasting change. Well, Christian, it is a large shock, but I also expect it to be a short-lived one. In fact, we're already seeing the beginning of the recovery. For example, we've had two months in a row of strong jobs gains in the U.S., despite the resurgence of the virus in parts of the country. I think that the main economic effects will be to accelerate some pre-existing trends. COVID-19 will be like gas on a fire. And specifically, I think it's going to accelerate a trend towards deglobalization, where production is increasingly onshored in developed markets. And it will accelerate the trend of rising market power, where the largest firms in our economy have an increased market share. I think your predictions may actually not be bold enough. I think it's bigger than that. I think uh, the COVID crisis will do more than just accelerate existing trends. I think. Um, if you look at some of the developments in spatial agglomeration, including the growth of megacities and the ever faster and easier frictionless movement of people rather than goods, I think these are trends that survived many shocks in the past, including the global financial crisis and the recent trade tensions. And um, if true, a change of these could really have major implications for productivity, growth, inequality, etc. All right, well, let's start with some of the existing trends that I think are going to accelerate. And deglobalization is an obvious one to me. So starting in the early 1990s, we had a boom in global trade. Exports as a percent of global GDP rose sharply for two decades and reached historic highs. Then around the financial crisis, this process seemed to plateau. And some of that was due to economics, like, uh, for example, the benefit of offshoring activity would have gone down as wages in emerging markets started to go up just as emerging markets benefited from all of this activity. Second, the cost of producing onshore started to fall as automation improved and domestic manufacturing costs fell. Yeah, the, the global financial crisis played a role here in two ways. One, it was a massive recession and therefore a shock to global trade, but it also highlighted the distributional consequences of ever increasing trade and in particular, the inclusion of this vast Chinese labor force into the into the global market. Yeah, it's true. You know, the the theory that trade improves welfare in aggregate probably played out, uh, but it also created winners and losers to a greater extent than economists were anticipating. And I think that led to some skepticism, particularly in developed markets, for policies that encouraged ever greater efficiency through offshoring. And then you know you couple that with the rise of China which became a political and at times even a national security issue, particularly for the US. So putting it all together, there was an organic slowdown in the pace of globalization. And then we had the dramatic rise in trade tensions with China. 
uh, in part due to the concerns you just mentioned. So tariffs on Chinese goods and non-tariff barriers went up, and that will led to a reduced US-China trade, but also it led to a diversion of trade, very much along the lines what you would expect from, from trade theory. So some of the goods that were previously traded between the US and China are still traded, but they often traded now through other countries and with other countries. And what we've seen already is that some of the FDI flows actually following the same pattern, going to destinations outside of China, to other locations in emerging Asia, where they would not be affected by US trade barriers. And now comes along the pandemic. And I think the result of that will be an acceleration towards onshoring, where the US and other developed economies bring production back home. So first of all, the COVID-induced lockdowns caused disruptions with factories and transportation hubs. It showed how vulnerable global supply chains are to production disruptions anywhere along the chain. Um, it also showed how reliant we were on seamless transportation of goods for sort of just-in-time production. I think COVID also revealed just how central China had become in many of these global supply chains. In many cases, it was the sole supplier of goods, including in areas like technology or healthcare, which were you know, of preeminent importance. I think that the geopolitical tensions with China are only going to increase from here. And reshoring production into the developed markets not only makes your supply chain pandemic proof, but it also makes it less exposed to geopolitical risk. And both of those issues are now much more front of mind than they have been at any other point in the past. Mm. I think the reshoring argument sounds plausible in principle. However, if you look at it in practice, a reversal of these global supply chains may really be uh, easier said than done, as some of our equity colleagues put it in a recent paper. Uh, the cost implications and the related margin losses for companies would really be immense. So maybe rather than reshoring, what we see more immediately will be attempts to diversify supply chains away from China to other emerging market economies, in particular in, in Asia. Uh, that's a lot easier. It should preserve the benefits of margins that uh, these companies gained over the decades of building these supply chains. And then as technology improves, uh, you know, at that point, we could see increased onshoring as a viable alternative. And uh, so it's something that will probably happen over time, but I don't necessarily see it as an immediate consequence of, of the COVID experience. You know, costs and margins, those are economic arguments. I think that, that we're at risk here of underestimating the political forces at play. I think the governments of the big developed markets are acutely aware of the national security and IP risks associated with uh, with all of the globalization that has happened and, the, and the, the movement of supply chains overseas. And you can see their awareness of this issue and attempt to rectify it, even in the fiscal policy response to COVID-19. There's a number of government initiatives designed to try to incentivize companies to bring some of this activity back on shore. We've seen that in the US, in Japan and Europe, whether it's uh, tax benefits or procurement policies, I think that there's a political dimension here that we need to be aware of. That's a fair point. Sure, I think political pressure will play an important role, but I think it will make the difference in specific sectors, uh, you know, those that are very important from an intellectual property perspective, and of course also in the, in the health sector. But again, a diversification 
may be able to assuage some of the political concerns. For example, the US administration is at the moment trying to create networks, commercial networks of trusted partners, as they call it. And that seems to be a step into that direction, whereby one tries to establish a more diversified and better controllable supply chain, uh, rather than really fasting forward directly into reshoring the activity at any cost. Now, let's move on to market power. Now, the U.S. has experienced an increase in industrial concentration over the past 20 years. Basically, the largest companies increasingly have a higher and higher market share. Now, in the pandemic, these large companies are the best positioned to withstand the economic shock. They have the most financial resources. They have the best access to credit. So you could look at the record issuance in the U.S. investment grade bond market as, as proof positive of the biggest company's ability to access financing even during the most severe disruptions. Um, these companies also have the best access to facilities put in place by central banks. Yes, I can see why you would say that market power for the largest companies could increase. And if, if left unaddressed, that could be maybe one of the major implications of the pandemic. But I would say that policymakers were quite aware of the issue. And if you see how they responded to COVID, in particular fiscal policy, they actually made significant efforts to alleviate some of those financial pressures from small and medium businesses. If you look at the US a paycheck protection program, for example, but then very similar programs also in the UK and Europe, they were all addressed really towards small and medium businesses. So if they work and they can be sustained long enough, I think at least the financial damage to these parts of uh, corporates can be kept uh, you know, less severe than they otherwise would be. You know, I'll admit that policymakers made an effort on this front. I'm just not that convinced that it's going to work. So let's look at e-commerce as an example. It was growing as a share of overall commerce for many years, uh, but there's been a, a massive shift forced by COVID-19 where you literally couldn't go into a store. You had to do your shopping online. And that plays directly into the hands of the sort of digital platforms. They tend to be winner-take-all uh, industrial organizations, meaning that there's one or two big platforms that sort of dominate a space. And as you force people to use those platforms, they naturally are aggregating more and more of their activity in a very small number of companies. This increased digitalization plays right into the hands of the biggest tech companies, which have been some of the companies that have benefited the most from increasing market share being aggregated by certain dominant firms. Again, yeah, it, that sounds sensible. Um, I think, as I said, it, it may ignore the likely policy response. If you think of the large uh, tech firms, particularly in the US, there has already been a rising skepticism. And uh, I, I think that happened already independent of the pandemic. And I would say that as a result of COVID-19, it may even grow. And uh, while Europe continues to take steps to curtail power of these companies, the US is now also becoming more active. So interestingly, concerns are rising from both sides of the political aisle on exactly that issue. Uh, you might be more optimistic than I am, Christian, regarding the effectiveness of regulation. But regardless, what we're talking about here still is the pandemic accelerating existing trends. We haven't talked about anything genuinely new. Exactly. Let's get uh, to some of the things which I think could be truly new changes as a result of the COVID pandemic. And uh, I think those will be in the area of uh, international movement of people and the spatial concentration of people in production. We have seen these trends uninterrupted 
uh, over the past decades and often actually accelerating over the past decade. If you look at international air travel, tourism, foreign education, and migrant labor. In parallel, we've seen you know, urbanization, uh, most notably the growth of megacities also continuing, despite the fact that we had deglobalization trends in other areas. So if COVID-19, you know, which is a, obviously a respiratory infectious disease, creates a fundamental rethink of the risks uh, of you know, living together closely, uh, frictionless traveling across continents, and, and living in you know, densely populated areas, that could really uh, reshape how the global economy works and how it's been you know, developed over, over a long time. Yeah, I'm skeptical in the middle of a crisis to make predictions that involve such fundamental change. You know, I think we have a risk of assuming permanency of some of the changes that we're experiencing right now, even though uh, that extrapolation may end up being uh, inappropriate once we, you know, uh, uh, have some semblance of a return to normalcy. So I think, you know, look at an example of that around 9-11, where in New York, a lot of people thought we wouldn't um, continue to live and work in big high-rise buildings. But, you know, you look at the Manhattan skyline now, uh, 20 years later, and uh, it looks the same. In fact, if anything, there's even more density and, and high-rises th than there were then. So, you know, I think fast forward six, nine months from now, we have some advances on the medical front, either in therapeutics or a vaccine or both. I think that uh, a lot of what you're talking about, travel, city life, moving from city to city, will just sort of naturally, maybe slowly, but naturally return back to pre-COVID normal. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, remember, uh, after 9-11, we may not have abandoned living in high-rises, but the security changes around air travel, they, they were permanent. And my impression is that if you have such an extraordinary experience on such a global scale, really unprecedented, uh, like the crisis we had now, uh, I think that could leave a lasting impression. And if people from here view that, you know, this type of, you know, disease or epidemic is a more permanent threat, even after we may have a vaccine or any other medical solution to the current COVID strain, um, I think they may more permanently value the trade-offs between, you know, living in densely populated ur urban areas, between, you know, frequent international air travel and being less mobile and living in, in less densely populated areas. They will weigh these advantages and disadvantages in a different way. You know, I will admit that four months into working from home, that the idea of getting on a crowded subway during rush hour comes with a fair bit of anxiety. Yeah, you know, and, and even relatively small changes in attitude, they could have a significant impact on, on certain sectors or entire economies. For example, travel and tourism has grown over the decades to about 10% of global GDP now. And some countries actually, for them, is the, the share is much higher. They really highly depend on it. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of that growth in tourism was from China, so much so that China's current account was neutral despite its large trade balances. That's that's like a sense of how much money Chinese tourists were spending abroad. Exactly. That's tourism. And then, you know, about 5% of the global workforce are migrant workers who move back and forth between their host and some of the home countries. And they, uh, they pay or they submit high remittances home. So these remittances are important. Um, the service sectors in advanced economies have become very reliant on frequent international travel for their staff and their clients financial services, business consulting, higher education, 
So we, we can clearly see this in the very high share of international flights in cities and countries that have extensive service sectors in this area, uh, you know, London, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. You know, Christian, it's exactly because unwinding all of this would be so costly is why I, I'm skeptical that it would actually happen. I think it's it's akin to your supply chain critique. So the cost of reversing these trends are so high that that I think it will uh, prove more difficult than people are forecasting. So like you said, urbanization, that's a trend that we've been experiencing sort of uninterrupted. You said for decades, I think you could argue it's been happening since the industrial revolution. Uh, now, you know, economic theory supports this. We have real benefits from increased agglomeration. You've got knowledge spillover, you know, areas like Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Route 128. Those concentrated areas of specialization happen for a reason. Agglomeration is a huge stimulant for productivity and with it growth. So, I mean, as an example, you know, a lot of people have been focusing on income inequality. You could attribute a large fraction of the increase in inequality in the U.S., to regional differences in productivities, where the mega cities have the highest productivity and the highest wages, and they sort of leave the rest of the country behind. Yes, so economic theory very well explains the reasons for agglomeration, but it always also acknowledges the disadvantages. So congestion, long waiting times, high housing costs, severe pollution, these trade-offs always existed. What I'm saying is that a new permanent concern now about uh, health epidemics could now tip the balance. So the risk, real or perceived, that we associate with crowding, mass transport, the inability to maintain social distance could become permanently higher. And at the same time, we now have experience of using digital services due to, for example, like remote working during the recent lockdowns. These services existed before, but we never used them so extensively. And so now we may have a, uh, perceived the losses of not meeting face-to-face -face with people as a lot less. So for example, you know, it is estimated that 30, 40% of jobs in the US could be done plausibly from home. Uh, so far, we haven't really tried that out, but we may in the future. You know, I remain skeptical regarding the ability to replace face-to-face -face human connectivity with remote working platforms. So sure, many jobs could plausibly be performed from home, but that doesn't mean it's the same thing as doing it really well from an office where you can interact with people. So, you know, as an example, it's relatively easy to collaborate over short or medium term digitally with people that you've worked together in person with for many years. I think it's a totally different thing to say, I'm gonna establish new relationships and trust through these remote communication channels. You know, I'd also point out you can't schedule serendipity. So random meetings at cafes or in bars or at the cafeteria at work where you have discussions that spark new ideas or new ways of thinking about things, you can't Zoom schedule that kind of interaction. Yeah, but we, we may not need a radical shift or a complete reversal of past trends. You know, small shifts could already have significant implications. For example, rather than fully undoing decades of urbanization, which is very unlikely, we could see a shift towards smaller, less densely populated second tier cities, more urban sprawl. Uh, you know, if, if you look at most recent search behavior from some property website, estate agents, et cetera, they show some evidence of people no longer looking for city, city centers, but for the outskirts. And, uh, you know, this is against projections that megacities on, on most of those projections are gonna 
increase in, in number over the, over the next decades, and that may not happen. I also think uh, we will have less travel and less interpersonal interaction and more digital interaction. Yeah, it's definitely the case that the suburbs in New York City have gotten a boost uh, as a result of the uh, COVID experience. And maybe the trade-off you're talking about, Christian, is inevitable. M maybe workers will demand it, even if companies don't necessarily see the benefits of uh, dispersed employees. Could be that their em employees will force the issue. But I, you know, I still think it comes at a cost of productivity. And with it, I think a decline in potential growth I'd also say that there are some distributional issues that we have to consider. So big mega cities have high paid knowledge jobs, right? Like Silicon Valley or Wall Street, but they also support a lot of services jobs. So, you know, your consumption patterns living in a big city are a lot different and might throw off a lot more economic activity. So, you know, when you live in a big city, you eat out more, you use ride hailing or taxi services more, you consume more culture and more arts. And um, I'd worry really that the scenario you're painting is actually kind of a bleak one for a lot of residents of the cities who aren't lucky enough to work in the jobs that are quote unquote plausible to do from home. That, that's a concern I share. Uh, these new spatial economics could be accompanied not only by working from home arrangements, which nicely suit you know, high skilled workers, but they also could bring further automation efforts, especially in areas where usually lower skill people are deployed in the, employed in the service sector. And uh, you know, over the past few years, we already saw that hotels and catering industries have started to outsource some of the human duties to so-called collaborative service robots. But so far, this has been driven mainly by cost efficiency considerations. Now, if you move into a world where you know, we are more concerned about hygiene, social distance, you know, automation in, in that part of the service industry could be really uh, receive a big boost. And obviously with the related uh, uh, pressure on, uh, uh, on low-skilled jobs. Yeah, so the new trend you're talking about could just be another factor that drives widening gaps between labor and capital, higher and lower skilled workers, benefits the winner-take-all companies over the rest of the companies in the economy, um, and probably actually benefits advanced developed markets over emerging markets. All of that would be good topics for future episodes of The Flip Side. Thanks for joining me, Christian. Clients of Barclays can read about our analysis of the long-term implications of COVID-19 for the global economy in the 65th edition of the Equity Guilt Study, available now on Barclays Love. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flip Side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com slash IB.